You know, the Bible says once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're adopted into the family of God, and we become sons and daughters of God. That's the theme of Galatians chapter 4. So turn, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. For those of you who are visiting, we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 4. We've been working our way through this wonderful epistle of Paul as he writes to the Galatian Christians. Now, if you remember, we've mentioned to you in times past that the Apostle Paul, on his first missionary journey, visited this area, this region of Galatia, on his first missionary journey. When he went into there, he basically preached the gospel to these pagan Gentiles, and he gave the organic gospel. The organic gospel is you're saved by faith alone and not by good works. Good works are a byproduct of salvation, but they're not a requirement of salvation. And so Paul preached this message, and he led many of the Galatians to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, after he left, there was a group of individuals called Judaizers who came in, and they basically threw the Galatians into confusion. And what they did was they said, faith in Christ is good, but it's not enough. You must keep the law of Moses, and you must be circumcised if you're really going to be born again. If you're really going to become a son and daughter of God, not only must you believe in Jesus, but you must become Jewish. And so, to enter into heaven, you had to go through the vestibule of Judaism. And they basically were confusing these Galatian Christians. They were advocating not an organic gospel, but they were advocating a gospel of faith and works. And so Paul has to pick up his pen and write this letter, which is really a polemical letter. And what I mean by polemical is he's giving an attack, he's giving an argument. And what he does throughout the book is he gives arguments as to why we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sometimes he uses theological and doctrinal arguments, and other times he uses very personal arguments, as we're going to see this morning, where he pleads with the Galatians not to go back to this false gospel. Now, the theme of chapter 4 is sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into God's family. And you have to understand that you're not by default in the family of God. Just because you're physically born doesn't mean you're automatically in the family of God. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. Prior to salvation, we were children of wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2. It also says in 1 John that we were children of the devil. Now, this doesn't mean that we worship the devil necessarily directly, but what it means is prior to salvation, we were caught in the web of Satan's lies. We were enveloped in his system. And so, we're not children of God. We're not sons and daughters of God by default or by birth. The Bible says you have to be adopted into the family of God. And what the Judaizers were arguing is, it's faith and works that allows you to become a child of God or a son and daughter of God. And Paul says, to the contrary, it's simply faith alone that allows us to be born into the family of God. Now, you have to understand, when Paul talked about this concept of adoption in Galatians and also Romans, he's borrowing from the social custom of his day. Rome was known for adoption. In fact, if you were adopted in first century Rome, here are some of the things that took place or some of the components. First, the adopted person lost all rights in his former family, and he gained all the rights of his new family. 
Isn't that what happens to us when we're adopted in the family of God? We gain new rights and new privileges, and now we're a part of the family of God. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father. The Bible says Jesus is our brother. Secondly, if you were in first century Rome and you were adopted, you became an heir to the father's estate, even if there were other biological sons. You would figure if you were adopted, you would be a second-class child, but not so. You were on equal footing with other biological sons that the father may have produced. Isn't that what the Bible says of you and I? You and I have all the rights and privileges being born into the family of God. Thirdly, in Roman culture, if you were adopted, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. If you had any debts, they were canceled. Wouldn't that be nice? If you had a record of a crime, it was totally abolished. Isn't that what the Bible says when we're adopted into the family of God? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. The new things have come. You see, God has wiped your slate clean. You're totally forgiven. He has transformed you. Fourthly and finally, in Roman culture, if you were adopted, you were literally and absolutely the son of the new father in every sense. The old life was gone, and you now were a bona fide child of that particular home. And that's exactly what God has done for us. And so what Paul is doing is he's borrowing from this social custom in Galatians chapter 4, and he's telling the Galatians, and he's telling you and I as well, that once we accept Jesus Christ by faith alone, not by good works, we are adopted into the family of God, and we become sons and daughters of God. God is our Father. We have brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are a part of a loving family. Now, Paul is going to give us some characteristics of what an adopted son or daughter looks like. The Bible says, if you are a son and daughter of God, we're to reflect our Father. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be imitators of God. Isn't that one of the characteristics of their children, especially when they're younger? They imitate their parents. Many times, not only the good habits that you have, but also the bad habits that you have. In fact, often with your children, you will see your sins walking on two little feet. And so the Bible says, if God is our father, we've been adopted in his family. What are the characteristics of someone who is a son and daughter of God? Let me share with you three this morning, and we'll look at the rest next week. Number one, the Bible says sons and daughters of God have been delivered from spiritual slavery. We have been delivered from spiritual slavery. Notice, if you will, chapter four, verses one through five. Paul says to the Galatians, now I say As long as the heir is a child, he does not defer at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. Now, you got to remember, here's a guy, he's an heir to his estate as a father, and he wants to bequeath that to his son, but the son is younger, and he's no different than a slave, even though he's going to get an inheritance when he gets older. And so that son that's going to experience the inheritance is treated no differently than a slave. Obviously, he's not abused, but he says here, as long as the heir is a child, he does not defer at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But verse 2 says, but he is under guardians and managers. If you read chapter 4, he talked about being under a tutor. And what a tutor and a guardian or manager was, it was basically another slave that was a custodian for the child. That slave or that tutor, that custodian, he managed the child. 
took the child to school, brought the kid home, did homework with him. He would discipline him, and he would provide structure for his life. And he says, look, when you were a child, even though you were going to inherit all this stuff that your father had, you're no different than a slave. You were commanded by law. You were disciplined by the law. But he says this in application in verse 3. So also, here's the spiritual parallel. While we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. He's saying, listen, before you became a Christian, you were like a little child. You were under the custodian of the law. The law circumscribed your life. You were in bondage to the law. He calls it the elemental things of this world. What is he referring to there? Well, he's probably referring to the ABCs of Judaism because that's what the Greek word means. It means something that's elementary. You see, all those things in the Old Testament were good. All the feasts and the festivals and circumcision, God instituted that, nothing wrong with it. But listen, it was a type and it was a shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. And so he's saying, you were in bondage to that. Now, this word elemental things can also refer to the paganism that the Galatians were involved in prior to coming to Christ. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, it was clear that they were into idolatry. So he says, look, when you were children, as it were, you were under the law and you were involved in idolatry, you were pagans and you were slaves to your sin. But notice what he says in verse four, but when the fullness of time came, What's the fullness of time? Well, he's borrowing from the language of that day because when a child was treated no differently than a slave, even though he was going to inherit all that his father had, the father set the date when that child would become a fully mature adult and they would receive the inheritance. And in Roman culture, it was 18 years old. We know in Jewish culture, you were bar mitzvahed at what age? Age 13, you became a son of the law. Well, here spiritually, when the fullness of time came, when God the Father determined at just the strategic time, God sent forth his son, that is Jesus Christ. Notice he was born of a woman that speaks of his incarnation, that speaks of his virgin birth. He was born under the law. Why was Jesus born under the law? Because the Bible says Jesus had to keep the law. He was subject to the law just like you and I. Not only the Jewish ceremonial laws, but Jesus was subject to the moral laws. In fact, sometimes people ask, well, why would God send Jesus and have him stay here for three years and then go through the crucifixion and resurrection event? Why didn't God just send Jesus down for a weekend? He could have proclaimed the message, died on the cross, and went back home. The reason why is Jesus, fully human, had to live among us, and Jesus had to demonstrate by his life that he kept the law perfectly. And the reason why is because Jesus kept the law perfectly. What God does is he takes his perfect life and he credits it to my account when I accept him as my Lord and Savior. You see, I don't get to heaven on the basis of my merits. I get to heaven on the basis of his merits. Jesus was born under the law and Jesus kept the law perfectly. You and I cannot keep the law. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might, here it is, receive the adoption as sons or daughters. Now, here's his point that he's making, is prior to becoming sons and daughters of God, you and I were slaves to the law. You and I were in bondage. We're like a little child. We're under the law. 
Notice what he says in verse 8 of chapter 4. He mentions the same concept of spiritual slavery prior to salvation. He says, however, in verse 8, at that time when you did not know God, in other words, prior to salvation, do you remember what you were like prior to knowing God? Maybe you were religious. Maybe you were in a Christian home, but you never were born again. Listen, it's possible to be raised in the church. It's possible to be raised in a Christian home and not be born again. Maybe you grew up in a home that really didn't worship God. Maybe you grew up and you had absolute freedom and you lived, you lived for sin with a vengeance. He says, remember what you were like before you did not know God. He says to the Galatians, here it is, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. Again, if you read Acts 13 and 14, when Paul went into Galatia, him and Barnabas healed a man. And as soon as they healed the man and the man got up, the people thought that the gods had come down from heaven to earth and they called them Zeus and Hermes. That was their polytheistic worldview that they were immersed in. And many of them got delivered from that idolatry. And so here's the point that Paul is making is that prior to becoming sons and daughters of God, you and I were slaves to sin. Jesus said in John chapter 8, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We were under the bondage of the law. We were under the tyranny of the law. You say, why is it tyranny? Because listen, the law demands perfection. God is a holy God. And the Bible says he has revealed himself through his law. The law is an expression of his nature. And God also says, you must keep my law perfectly in order to have eternal life. Now watch this. Theoretically, if you and I could keep God's law perfectly, God would owe us eternal life. But the problem is none of us can keep the law of God perfectly. As James says, if you violate the law at one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. And who has not violated the law of God? And so in that sense, we're under the bondage of the law because we've all failed to keep the law perfectly. We're all under its penalty. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is what? Death. God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit and violate my command is the day that you will die. They died spiritually. And also their physical death was delayed, but ultimately they died. And by the way, have you ever thought about this? When God gave that penalty in the garden, God has never revoked that penalty. Most of us, when we ground our children, we say you're grounded for three weeks. And what happens at the end of the three weeks? We lift the grounding. God has not lifted the penalty of sin since the Garden of Eden, and he's not going to lift the penalty until Jesus Christ comes back and creates a new heaven and a new earth. But see, you were under the tyranny of sin just like I was. We were under the consequence of the law. I remember years ago when we lived in Irmo, we lived in Friarsgate. And one Sunday afternoon, I had an itch to go fishing. And I noticed in Irmo, right across from McDonald's, in the area there, there was this hidden pond. And I thought to myself, I bet you no one's ever fished that pond before. Let me go ahead and go over there, and I'll try to fish it. So I brought a friend of mine, and we thought we were going to catch some real big bass. And uh, <clears throat> we started to fish, but I noticed when I got there, there was a sign that said, no fishing, no trespassing. So I thought to myself, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to go ahead and fish anyway. You ever been in that situation before? Maybe not. And I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I thought, you know what? I can't resist the temptation of catching this fish. So as soon as I threw my line in the water, 
I saw a police officer walking towards us, and I thought, oh boy, I'm in trouble. He says, guys, what are you doing here fishing? He goes, this is private property. I said, well, police officer, I couldn't resist. I had to fish, blah, 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 blah. He said, listen, I'm going to give you a warning this time. He goes, next time, you're going to be in trouble. And I was thanking him so much because I thought to myself during that time, I thought, isn't this great? It's going to be in the news that pastor gets arrested for violating a property. And I thought, wow, I was going to be subject to the law and its consequences for violating the law. Well, that's exactly what happened to you and I. We are under the bondage of the law. We are under its consequence. And listen, what you and I need is to be rescued. And that's why he says here in Galatians chapter 4, God was on a search and rescue mission. You know what he did? He sent Jesus, who was born of a virgin, he was born under the law in order that Jesus would fulfill the requirements of the law in order to redeem us. See, you and I need to be rescued. I was reading about a girl. You'll notice her up on the screen here. Her name is Jessica McClure. Back in 1986, it was televised all over the U.S. This little girl was 18 months old, and she was at her aunt's daycare in Midlands, Texas. And while she was playing with her friends, there was a rock, and it covered this area. Somehow, the kids got the rock off, and she fell down 22 feet into this well that was very narrow. And they worked about 58 hours to get her out of this situation that she had fallen in. In fact, here's what the rescue team did, quote, using a large rat hole rig, a machine normally used to plant telephone poles in the ground, rescue teams drilled a 30 inch wide, 29 foot deep hole parallel to the well. Then they began the difficult process of drilling a horizontal tunnel between the two wells about two feet below where baby Jessica was trapped, end quote. They finally rescued her, but she stayed in the hospital one month, and she actually lost her toe to gangrene. And I thought to myself, that's exactly the predicament that you and I were in prior to salvation, prior to becoming sons and daughters of God. We were trapped, as it were, in a well of sin, and we could not rescue ourselves. But Jesus came along, took on human flesh, he kept the law perfectly, and the Bible says he went into the well, and what he did was he reached out, he redeemed us, he pulled us out of the well so that you and I could be sons and daughters of God. You see, that word redemption is a rich word. It was used in the first century of slavery. The Roman Empire at this time probably had a million or plus slaves. And Paul uses that term, redemption, to talk about spiritual salvation. Because in that culture, what would happen is if a master wanted a slave, what he would do is he would go to the slave market, he would find the slave that he wanted, and he basically would pay a redemption price. And he would do one of two things. He would either let the slave go, or that slave would now have a new master. And you see, the Bible says prior to salvation, you and I were on the slave market of sin. We were slaves to sin, Satan, and the system. Jesus comes along as the master, and he pays the redemption price, and you know what he does? He sets us free from the tyranny and slavery of sin so that you and I now have a new master. And so here's the oxymoron. We're free slaves. We're free slaves. On the one hand, Jesus has set us free. On the other hand, the Bible says we're called to be slaves of Christ. And so God did for that for us in order to redeem us. 
There's a story told about a young boy who one day he made this boat that he really loved and he decided to test it near the local river of this small town. After he made it, he put a string on it and he went to the local river and while he was there, he put the boat delicately in the water and uh, he began to watch it and play, for, play with it. It was a nice day and all of a sudden a current hit the river and it took the boat down the river. He tried to pull it in, but the string broke and his boat got away. He was brokenhearted because he searched for it for a couple hours. He couldn't find it. Finally, two days later, he's walking home from school and he notices in one of the windows, there's this boat for sale. So he stops, he looks in and he says, no, it can't be. He recognizes it as his boat. So he goes into the store and he says, Mr. Mr. The store owner, he says, that's my boat in the window. The man said, uh, young boy, he says, uh, somebody brought that in a couple of days ago. He says, if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. He said, well, how much is it? The guy said a dollar. So he went home, he collected all of his change, which was a dollar, and he came back and he purchased the boat. And when he walked out, he looked at the boat and he said this, he said, you are twice mine. He says, the first time I created you and the second time I bought you back. And you see, that's what God did for us. We were slaves to sin, the system, Satan. We were under the tyranny and the bondage of the law. But what Jesus Christ did was not only did he create us, but the Bible says he bought us back from the slavery of sin. And so listen, the issue is this. If you and I have been delivered from the slavery of sin, why are we going to go back to it? In other words, you and I are not going to be perfect in this life. But God has rescued us not only from the penalty of sin, but the Bible makes it very clear he's rescued us from the power of sin. And sometimes we're not convinced of that because we all have areas in our life where we struggle. And as I said, we're not going to reach sinless perfection in this life. There are those who teach that, that you can get to a point in your Christian life where you don't willfully sin anymore. Nothing can be further from the truth. You're going to battle sin until the day Jesus Christ takes you home. But listen, you and I are called to victory in Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says Jesus is on the throne. Sin has been dethroned. The tyranny of sin has been dethroned. Jesus Christ is on the throne of our life. And listen, if he's not on the throne of your life, what's going to happen is you're not going to burn white hot for God. You're not going to serve Jesus Christ. You're not going to hunger for him. So the first characteristic of a true daughter and son of God is they have been delivered from the spiritual slavery of sin and the law. There's a second characteristic of a son and daughter of God, and that is this. They possess intimacy with God. They possess intimacy with God. Notice, if you will, verses 6 and 7. He says to the Galatians, Because you are sons or daughters, God has sent forth the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, into our inner man, crying, Abba, Father. That is the Aramaic word, and basically what it means is Papa. It means Daddy. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He says here, one of the characteristics of a son or daughter of God is they have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. Now, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the third member of the Trinity comes to live on the inside of you. It's not always a mystical experience, but you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple in the Old Testament is where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. In the New Covenant, you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives on the inside of us. 
And because the Spirit of God lives on the inside of us, you and I have intimacy with God. The Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, which means Papa. Now, you have to understand that was a radical thought to the Jews because no one individually in the Old Testament and even during Jesus' ministry called God their personal Papa or Father. The Jewish people saw God as their Father nationally. They did not see God as their Father individually and personally. So when Jesus said it on the Sermon on the Mount, when he gave the Lord's Prayer, how did he open it up? He said, our what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see, that was a radical thought. But the Bible makes it clear that God is our Father, and that means we have an intimate relationship with Him. It means we can be real with God. It means we can be honest with God. And I realize there's a tension between respecting God and fearing God, as the proverb says. We are to have a holy reverence for God. We don't want to be flippant. But at the same time, some people struggle with this concept of knowing God in an intimate, personal way as a loving Heavenly Father. Some of you may have been abused growing up. Some of you may have been mistreated by a parent or a significant other. And so your idea of God is He's this Egyptian taskmaster. He's always whipping you spiritually. You're never doing enough. You don't sense God's unconditional love. But listen, because you are a child of God, because the Spirit lives on the inside of you and you can cry, Abba, Father, in spite of your hurts, in spite of your habits, in spite of your hang-ups, God loves you unconditionally. His love for you is irrevocable. It is unchangeable. It is eternal. And God wants you to be real with Him. That's what intimacy is. In fact, I love the best definition I've heard of intimacy is into me see. Into me see. See, God sees into you. He knows your heart. He knows you, your weaknesses. He knows your struggles. And you know what? Sometimes we don't want to come to God because we're embarrassed. Now, listen, God loves you enough not to leave you where you're at. He wants to shape you and mold you. And God, as a loving father, will chastise you. He will chasten you. But the reality is God loves us unconditionally so that in our hearts we cry, Abba, Father. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says this. There are times in our life when we're broken. There are times in our life where we're hurting. We don't know how to pray. Have you ever been there before where you're spiritually depleted? Maybe you're physically depleted. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe your child is wayward. Maybe you're dealing with a physical ailment. Whatever it is, sometimes we get to the point in our life where we feel so broken, we say, God, I don't have anything left. I've been there before. Lord, I don't know, even know what to pray. I don't even know what to articulate. I've prayed so many times, Lord, I don't know what to say. And you know what Romans chapter 8 says? It says the Spirit of God is our divine interpreter. The Spirit takes what's in our heart, those words that we cannot articulate, those words that we cannot verbally express to God. The Spirit of God interprets that and lifts it back to the Father so that the Spirit intercedes for us, it says in Romans 8, with groans that cannot be uttered. You see, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus, when he was in the garden sweating drops of blood, he was struggling with God's plan. He wanted to submit to God's plan. But he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. It's interesting in Luke's account, it says that Jesus called him daddy. He called him papa, a term of intimacy. 
And yet on the cross, when Jesus was bearing the sins of the world, he didn't say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And so when you pray this week, come to God as your papa, as your daddy. It's a term of intimacy. Listen, I experienced this with my grandkids. And listen, there's nothing like being a grandparent. It's better than being a parent, I can tell you that. And I remember for years, people would tell me, oh, there's nothing like being a grandparent. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I'm a grandparent, I love to hear my grandson. When I go over to my daughter's house probably every day, no, I'm just kidding. When I go over her house on a regular basis, as soon as I walk in, you know what he says? Papa, Papa, he runs to me and I pick him up. When I'm on the phone with my daughter, I hear him in the background, Papa, Papa, where's Papa's truck? I want to go Papa's truck. And you know, there's something endearing about the word Papa. And too often, we have a distorted view of God. God is this angry ogre. He doesn't care about me. Now, I know sometimes things happen in our life and we say, God, why? Why am I going through this? And so we struggle with God seeing him as a loving heavenly father. But the Bible makes it very clear that God loves us as his father. This week, I was listening to a man, some of you who grew up in the 80s. His name is Dan Fogelberg. Dan Fogelberg had some great music. And you know, unlike a lot of the music today, most of it was clean. And Dan Fogelberg, you'll notice up on the screen, there's a picture of him and his father. He basically gives in this one song a tribute to his father. His father was a music man. His father taught at a high school, and he actually led the music team there and the choir there. Dan Fogelberg took on the life of his dad, and he traveled, produced music, and much of it was played on the radio. He did very well. Dan Fogelberg died at a young age. He had prostate cancer. I think he died in his early 50s. But he wrote a song as a tribute to his father that I think illustrates what I'm talking about, the intimacy of fatherhood and papa. He says this, speaking of his dad, a quiet man of music denied a simpler fate. He tried to be a soldier once, but his music wouldn't wait. He earned his love through discipline, a thundering velvet hand. Notice it was thundering and yet it was soft. His gentle means of sculpting souls took me years to understand. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy of the leader of the band. And then he says this as he closes the song. I thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough. And there it is. And Papa, I don't think I said you what? I love you near enough. You see, when I heard that song, it reminded me of this. He called him Papa. Why did he say that? Because it was a term of endearment. It was a term of affection. And so when you come to God in prayer, remember as a son and daughter of God, God is your father. He is your personal father. He wants you to bring your burdens. He wants you to bring your needs. There is no insignificant need with God. Even some of your desires, he wants you to bring them. 
And he loves you and accepts you in spite of your hurts, your hangups, and your habits. We all have idiosyncrasies. We all have quirks. We all have sins that we struggle with. It's not an excuse to sin, but it's simply to say that, listen, God's love for me is not on the basis of my performance. God's love for me as Papa is based on the performance of Jesus Christ. I don't have to perform to get God to accept me. He already accepts me in Jesus Christ. What I do, I do out of love and gratitude for him, not to earn his favor and his affection. I already have that. And so sons and daughters have been delivered from spiritual slavery. Secondly, they have intimacy with God. And thirdly and finally for this morning, sons and daughters of God avoid going back into slavery. They avoid going back into slavery. Now here, Paul is going to deal with the backslidden nature of the Galatians. As you know, the Judaizers were throwing them into confusion, and they were tempted to go back. And we've all been there before. And you know, many of Paul's arguments in Galatians, as I mentioned, are theological, but here it becomes more personal. There's a lot of pathos here. Paul shares his heart. He pleads with the Galatians. He says this in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, he assumed that many of the Galatians were Christians and that they had come to know God. Now, this is looking at salvation from man's perspective. But then he qualifies. He says, or rather, to be known by God. That's looking at salvation from God's perspective. So you say, Paul, which one is it? Did God save me or did I save myself? Did I choose God or did he choose me? Am I responsible for my salvation or is God responsible for my salvation? Paul says here it's both. Listen, you got to live with the tension. You got people that want to say salvation is totally of God, he's totally sovereign, and I really don't have any say in my salvation. And then you got people in this theological camp who say, no, it's based on me. I've got to accept Jesus Christ. I'm responsible. And you know what the Bible says? The answer is in the middle. The Bible says God chose me before the foundation of the world, but the Bible also says I'm responsible to believe. And so if someone dies and doesn't know Jesus Christ, they can't say on the day of judgment, the reason why I'm going to hell is because you did not choose me. God's going to say, no, the reason you're going to hell is because you rejected my son or you didn't respond to general revelation through creation. And so Paul says to them, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, and here is where he goes after the juggler. How is it that you turn back? There it is. They're going back. They're backsliding. How is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He says, why are you going back to Judaism? Don't listen to those Judaizers. You got to keep the feasts and the festivals. You got to be circumcised. He says, Listen, Christ set you free as sons and daughters of God. Why do you want to go back into that slavery? He says, Look, you already graduated with your PhD. Why are you going to go from graduate school with your PhD all the way back to elementary school? And you got to understand, the Old Testament was good, but it was types and shadows. All of the stuff in the Old Testament was instituted by God. It was good. But listen, it served a purpose. It was to point people to the Messiah. And ultimately, it was a a teaching tool for Israel. But its fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. And so imagine today 
We believe in Jesus Christ, the atonement. He died and rose again. Imagine if John came back here and he says, guys, we're going to start doing animal sacrifices. First of all, you would go, John, what's up with that? That's weird. It's cultish. I'm not staying at this church. Why would we go back to the shadow when the reality is here? And so he's saying, look, why are you guys backsliding? Why are you going back? And you know what? Most of us probably aren't going to go back into some form of religion, although I'll be honest with you in my ministry, I've dealt with people before that have been going to church who have heard the truth for five, six, seven, ten years, and they'll come back to me and they say, I'm going back to Roman Catholicism. Now, don't get me wrong. There are Catholics that are saved. They are precious people. But by and large, Roman Catholicism does not preach the gospel. They do not teach the way of salvation. It's a work salvation. It's faith plus works. And so I'm thinking to myself, why would this person who's been immersed in biblical theology all of a sudden go back to a system over here that is bankrupt spiritually? That happens. But you know, for most of us, the temptation is to backslide into our former way of life. Paul says, why are you going back? Look what he says here in verse 10. You observe days. That's weekly Sabbaths. They took off on Saturday. You observe months. That's new moon festivals taught in the Old Testament. And seasons and years. He says, you're going back to the feasts and the festivals. You're going back to Passover, unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. All of those things, the Judaizers were saying, look, you got to do all of this in order to be saved. Okay, you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you got to go through the vestibule of Judaism. And Paul says, no, why are you going back to all this stuff? In verse 11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Maybe you didn't get saved. All this effort that I've put forth, it seems to be unraveling. Notice what he says in verse 12. Here he gives his heart, I beg you, brethren, I plead with you, become as I am. What does he mean by that? In other words, I'm free from the law. I'm not doing all those Jewish things in order to earn my salvation. He says, for I also have become as you are. It's as if I've become a Gentile. I'm not shackled by all those Judaistic laws. He says, you have done me no wrong. And so here's the temptation as sons and daughters of God. When you're saved, it's easy if you're not careful. And if you don't guard your heart, watch this you can go back into your old way of life. Now, there are Christians who backslide. I remember I went through a period in my life when I got saved. There was a, there was a transformation in my life. Clearly, God changed my heart. And I was walking with God for a couple of years. And I remember I took heat for it from my football buddies because I didn't want to party with them. Then my senior year, because I wasn't guarding my heart, as Proverbs chapter 4 says, Gradually and incrementally, I began to compromise. I started drinking again, started carousing again. And then before long, when I got to college, my first two years, I was fully immersed in the lifestyle that God had delivered me out of. And if we're not careful and we don't guard our heart, we're not in scripture, we're not cultivating our relationship with God, we're not putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we're not watching our eye gate, our ear gate, and other things, our relationships, what can happen is we can revert back to the former manner of life. That's exactly what Israel did. Do you remember when God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage, which by the way is a picture of salvation? The blood on the doorpost is a picture of Jesus's death. And when we accept that, God delivers us out of bondage. And where was God taking the Israelites? 
He was taken to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, they had to trust God. And they went through difficulty. God gave them manna. And they were saying, you know what? I'm tired of this manna. I'm tired of manna pies. I'm tired of manna souffle. I'm tired of manna casseroles. And they kept complaining and complaining. You know what they said to Moses? Oh, that we would go back to Egypt where it's a land filled with leeks, onions, and what? Garlic. You see, they had forgotten the slavery that God had delivered them out of. Why? Because they were being sifted, they were being sanded, and they were being pruned. God wanted to take them to the promised land, but when they got to the land, God had to purify them. God had to de-Egyptianize them. He had to break them in preparation for entering the land. And what happens is because of their unbelief, they wandered in the wilderness 40 years, and it was the next generation that went in. And you know, we can parallel that in our Christian life. God delivers us out of the slavery of Egypt. We become Christians. And what happens is we go through tests and difficulties in our life. We get pulled. And God has taken us to the promised land. We're headed to heaven. But listen, your trip to glory and how effective and how much fruit you bear is going to be determined by your focus on glory and not looking back at Egypt. It may be religious. Paul says here, don't go back to that religious slavery. You're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's an organic gospel. But for a lot of us, it's the pull of the world. You start dating someone. This is a big one. I've seen Christians who are doing well. I remember a girl got saved in my church in New Jersey. She was model material. She wrote down, I got saved. And she said, I need to talk with you. So I met her in a public place. We talked. And as I counseled her, I said, look, do not date guys that are going to pull you away from Jesus. Well, she acknowledged that, but sure enough, she started to date guys that didn't have the same values as her and right back into the world. You say, was she saved? I don't know. Only God knows the heart. But listen, if we're not careful, relationships can pull us down, as he's going to say later on in uh, Galatians. Now, as we close, many of you have heard this hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Most of us love that hymn, but we don't know the history behind it. The story is told about revival that broke out in England back in the 17 or 1800s. And a group of these people that got saved in England decided that they want to spread the word of God. They wanted to fulfill the Great Commission. So God laid on their heart to go to India. And in India, there was this tribe of people that were known to be very aggressive. They were headhunters. In fact, in their culture, one of the benchmarks of a strong man was how many heads he had. And if you wanted to be an eligible bachelor, as we would say today, in their culture, the more heads a man had, the more he was an eligible bachelor for a female. Well, this is the kind of culture they went into, this headhunting tribe. Well, the missionaries labored there for years. Finally, they led some of them to Christ, one particular family. Well, this family that had come to Christ began to be contagious, and they spread the word to the other tribes people, and they came to Christ. Well, finally, the chief didn't want any more of this, and so he, he grabbed that initial family that had come to Christ among his tribe, and he said, look, I don't know who this Jesus is, but if you don't renounce your faith in this Jesus, he said, I'm going to execute your children. And here is what the man said in his initial response to him. He said, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. 
The arrows hit his sons, killed them. He said, I'm going to give you another chance to renounce your faith in Jesus, and if you don't, I am going to execute your wife. To which the man replied, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. His wife was probably, thanks, hon, I appreciate that. (laughs) The arrow takes out her. He says, if you don't renounce your faith, this is the last time, I am going to take your life. And he said this, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Gone. The chief was so impressed that this family was willing to deny, uh, uh, not deny their faith in Jesus Christ. He thought to himself, who is this man who lives thousands of miles away, who had such a powerful influence on this particular family? He says, I want to know this God And the chief converted there, and the whole tribe did. God did a miracle. But see, that's the background of this hymn. And you know what Paul is saying to Galatians? True sons and daughters, no turning back, no turning back. Listen, once you leave the world behind in your old life, you become a new creation. And the Bible says, don't go back. We're all pulled to go back. It's easier. It's easier to be a lazy, complacent Christian or to live in the world. That's part of the struggle. But while we're here, you got to keep your focus on Jesus. And listen, that's why it is so critical. You're in fellowship, you're in the word, you're in prayer, you get connected to a small group, start serving God in some form of outreach or ministry. That's what buttresses you against the attacks of the world because they're going to come. And most of us may not go back to our sordid past if we had one, but I'll tell you where Satan gets most Americans, it's complacency, it's laziness, it's materialism. It's ease, it's comfort. You see, that's what often happens to us. So what did we learn this morning about sons and daughters of God? Paul says sons and daughters of God have been delivered from spiritual slavery. Sons and daughters of God possess intimacy with God. And finally, sons and daughters of God do not go back into spiritual slavery. Next week, we're going to look at the remaining components. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for reminding us that we are sons and daughters of you by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Lord, that's a privilege to be in your family. And God, we forget that. But God, I can't wait for that day when we're in your presence. And there's going to be one big family in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every language. And Lord, we're going to worship you as our father for eternity. We're going to sense your love directly, not indirectly. And Father, we're going to bear your image throughout all eternity. What a great future we have. But Father, until that day, I pray that all of us who represent you as your sons and your daughters, Father, may we imitate you. May we get rid of those things in our life that don't reflect you. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, maybe you have gone back. Maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe you're drifting in your walk with God and you're not doing what you should be doing. You know, the Bible says God is a God of mercy and grace and love and he wants you to come back to him and he wants you to be fully devoted to him. Would you take a minute now just to ask the Lord to strengthen you and to confess anything in your life that is not right?
Father, thank you for delivering us out of spiritual slavery, the tyranny of the law. Thank you that we're no longer under the law in the sense of its consequence or penalty, that Jesus fulfilled the law for us so that we may be blameless in your sight. We give you thanks for clothing us in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.